Hey, y'all. Uh, if you want to follow along in your Bible, you can turn to Daniel 3, which is where we'll spend most of our time tonight. If not, I promise I'll, I'll read it out loud. I may paraphrase, so if you see me skipping things, it's because Daniel 3 is really repetitive. And so you can go back and, and figure out the parts that repeat later. Uh, as the gentleman earlier mentioned, last week Kevin began us in our next theme of our year in biblical literacy, which focuses on Daniel and a people in exile. He weaved a vision of a creative minority that must both recognize her place in the world while recognizing her call to be different. As we continue through Daniel, we'll find ourselves in a narrative where King Nebuchadnezzar has issued an edict commanding all the world, or basically all of his world, to worship this golden statue that he's erected. To provide a bit of context, the book of Daniel is set in a time where the Jewish people are living in a foreign land because they've been taken over. The king of Babylon was Nebuchadnezzar, and during this time of exile, the Babylonian Empire would take some from the nation of Israel to train and assimilate them into Babylonian culture. In Daniel 1, we see that Daniel and three of his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were among those who were chosen from Judah to come and train in the king's court. In fact, we as the reader quickly understand that Babylon is attempting to strip Daniel and his friends of their Jewish and Israelite identity by giving them new names, Babylonian names. So Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah become Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's a quick but important side note I want to spend just a moment on. Names are significant in the Bible. When God changed a person's name and gave him a new name, it was to establish a new identity. For example, Abram, which means high father, was changed to Abraham, which means father of multitude. We see Jacob's name change to Israel. In the New Testament, we see Simon, which means God has heard, changed to Peter, which means rock. And we know that the most prolific writer in the New Testament, Paul, had his own name change from Saul whenever he changed from being, frankly, the largest persecutor of Christians to the largest advocate. Here, however, the Babylonian Empire is attempting to strip Daniel and his three friends of their Jewish identity and recreate them as Babylonians. So we find ourselves in Daniel 3, many years after the initial bringing of Daniel and his friends to train under King Nebuchadnezzar. And if we turn to Daniel 3, we read that King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. That is a really large statue in the middle of everywhere. Right? So imagine just a huge statue being placed in the middle of town. That's what happened. So then he summons everyone. He summons the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled, um, and he asked them to assemble for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they all came and stood before it. When everyone was standing before this massive golden statue in the middle of town, a herald loudly proclaimed, nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. 
Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So, of course, when people heard all this kinds of music, all the nations and people of every language fell down and worshipped this image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Well, everyone except for a few we find. Whenever we continue to read in Daniel 3, from 8 on, we see that a certain set of people decided not to bow down and worship. And in fact, are any of you teachers? Okay, so 8 through 15 is your typical tattletale story. Watch this, right? So first, at this time, some astrologers, which are wise men from Babylon, came forward to denounce the Jews. So the first thing they do is they butter the teacher up. They say, King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Right? So they're like, great, we love you. And then they say, your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to name them, who pay no attention to you. Your majesty, they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. So Nebuchadnezzar is furious. He summons these three men, and they're brought before him. And Nebuchadnezzar says to them, Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now when you hear the sounds of all kind of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now, I, I want us to have a visual here, right? You have these three individuals who are standing in the court of the king, who's probably heightened on his chair, staring down on them. They are likely surrounded by armed guards, right? They are in the middle of this. The entire force of the kingdom is upon them in this moment. When I read Daniel 3, I can't help but think of another prophetic voice writing very similarly. But this prophetic voice is more modern, and the Babylonian Empire is actually the American one. In his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. seemed to describe himself to be in a very similar position to our three characters from Daniel. The weight of government was upon him, and yet he writes, one may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. Reverend King continues that a just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with that moral law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just, and any law that degrades human personality is unjust. I bring up Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter because I need us as a church to understand that this narrative of Daniel, one that some of you may have first heard in Sunday school, or likely one that many of you associate with a chocolate bunny from Veggie Tales, <laughs> this is not merely a story that provides historical context or captures our faith heritage. No, it is a narrative of a people in exile that shares a powerful lesson for us 
here today. So what can we as a church learn from this narrative? First, it is that we must be weary of civic religion taking place of our faith in Christ. When we look at this passage, we must understand that the context of this golden statue, this statue represents not just the gods of King Nebuchadnezzar, but also represents the power of his very kingdom. This is a representation of him and everything that he has built. Many of you may hear this story and find it silly that we would spend an entire Sunday on this topic. In your minds, you discount the behaviors of the Babylonians because you, of course, would never worship a golden statue. However, we practice and participate in civic religion every day in America. Now, I want to make a couple quick caveats. First, I'm going to speak from an American context because, frankly, that's what I'm most familiar with. You know, some of us in our congregation are new to the U.S. context and may not feel an affinity for the American civic religion that applies at all. But there are still important lessons in this sermon for you. And I say that not just because I don't want you to tune me out, but rather that I really want to encourage you to reflect on your own civic religion that you carry with you. Now, most of you are likely ready to interrupt me to protest my assertion that you follow any form of civic religion at all. However, most of us will fall into two camps and likely spend time in both. Now, some of us here have been sold on the American civic religion and don't even know it. There are our sacred texts like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, our worship music like the national anthem that somehow makes us cry at the Olympics. We pledge allegiance to a flag, and we even have our own statues that we venerate. We quote from the Statue of Liberty. We see her as a symbol. And in fact, here in Washington, D.C., we have monuments that surround a mall that we walk down. We subscribe to sacred values of liberty and freedom and individualism, and we are in danger of seeing our salvation or faith as symbiotic to the success and values of our country. Others of us have felt like we're in exiles in this nation for a long time, with what seems like daily headlines of another unarmed young black boy being shot, with xenophobic threats on the rise, with women, and particularly women of color, fighting for dignity and equal pay in the workplace, some of us have felt that the American civic religion just hasn't worked out for us. However, civic religion is also about buying into that oppression. Individuals living in the U.S. who find themselves questioning their place have a lot to learn from Daniel and his friends. I can imagine that Jewish men were paid far less than their Babylonian counterparts, and that their lives were disregarded, that law enforcement from Babylon would treat Jewish people inhumanely with no consequence. Daniel 3, in fact, is all about an anti-Jewish law that came from the king. No matter what camp we find ourselves in, and again, I think most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, spend time in both, we seek deliverance from our political leaders. Obama campaigned on a message of hope that if you place your faith in him as a leader, the country will be a better place. Trump promised to save America, that he could make it great again. It doesn't actually matter which one of those resonate with you more. The result is the same. 
It is tempting for us to place our trust in messianic figures of the American civic religion. We think that our candidate, our cause, our organization will deliver us and fix all the problems. We are trained to engage with civic religion of our day from a very young age, and we idolize what becomes sacred concepts. Now, when we look at the civic religion of Babylon, we see three things. The first is that there is a message from King Nebuchadnezzar that gods have chosen Babylon. Babylon is an empire. It's conquered not just Judah, but pretty much everyone else around. Right? And therefore, in the mind of King Nebuchadnezzar, in the mind of the people, the gods favor Babylon. The gods favor that empire. And therefore, Babylon and its kings are agents of God's rule, of God's will, of God's salvation, and of God's presence on the earth. Babylon manifests the God's blessings, right? Security, peace, justice, flourishing, if only people submit to Babylon's rule. These are the things we see the Babylonians believing, right? These are the things that they are ascribing to. This is the civic religion that they are creating. It terrifies me how easily we can replace Babylon with America. God has chosen America. America and its presidents and politicians are agents of God's rule will, salvation, and presence among human beings. America manifests God's blessings, security, peace, justice, flourishing, among those who submit to America's rule. How often do we hear the phrase that America is a Christian nation? I was once listening to a pastor speak about this concept and challenged it, saying that America is not a Christian nation. Christian nations are not built on the backs of slaves and are not expanded through calculated genocide. No, America's an empire, just like Babylon, just like Rome, just like Persia. And in fact, I would submit that there is a persistent and unavoidable tension that we must recognize between being a follower of Jesus and being a follower of civic religion. It is our obligation as Christians to act like Daniel's friends and to remember where our loyalty lies in Christ and Christ alone. We must be more loyal to Christ than we are to any other geography or identity factor. Our mindset must be focused on God's demand for justice and God's vision of earth. And we must order our lives around his vision and his plan and not the other way around. When Martin Luther King Jr. wrote his letter from Birmingham jail, he was con connecting with this very reality that our souls yearn for divine justice because we are made in his image and that God's version of justice does not always equate to man's perversion thereof. Civic religion is this process of making sacred the nation's character and leaders. But we have to remember that empires rise and fall. The kingdom of God is not a man-made political system, though, and instead a revolutionary call to follow Jesus in his ministry. Now, before I get too many emails that are frustrated with me, I want to make clear that this is not intended to be an anti-U.S. or any sort of anti-national sermon. 
Right? I think that there's a lot of value and an entire other sermon could be spent on how, what our role is in the country we're at. Right? It's valuable for us to engage in our communities, to be proud of our communities, to think a lot about them. I don't mean to say that. But I do mean this to be a sermon that challenges our adherence to civic idols, some of which we have wed to Christianity to give them more bite. C.S. Lewis, who's a famous theologian, once commented that as humans we are tempted to link our commitment to Christ too closely with one or more of our other group attachments. He often referred to this as a Christ and approach, when we are called to a Christ-only approach. Civic religion is the self-righteous justification that God is for my cause. Right? God is evoked by both sides of the aisle, by all political leaders, to push people to vote in a certain way, to take a specific action or to support a specific cause. We want to fit God into our civic religion. I support issue X, and therefore God does too. Right? I voted for person Y, and so would Jesus. Right? In fact, it, when I was in South Africa for the last local election, I recall that the ANC, which is a political party there, literally had people riding around in township communities with bullhorns, stating that God would punish those who don't vote ANC and that true, true Christians vote ANC. Right? This is... They were at least honest about their effort, right? Sometimes we try and hide it. So in fairness, there was boldness there that I appreciate. <laughs> but it was also a really good example, this idea of building in God to our own goals and purpose of civic religion. Civic religion is a mix of creating new gods and idols while contributing any victory or forward movement to the divine mandate. In fact, when we look at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I assume that it wasn't quite as clear as it looks in Daniel 3. They only had a couple sentences to get us a story. But it's unlikely that this was a surprise statue. Right? This wasn't the first move by King Nebuchadnezzar just to say, you know, I'm going to build this obscenely large statue right now in the middle of nowhere. No. There's likely many events and things that preceded this statue. Similarly, our inception into civic religious practice is not often one big bold choice, but instead a passive acquiescence to the culture around us. These three men had to be discerning. They had to ask the question, what does my faith compel in this situation? We as Christians are called to discern when our calling as Christians, as people of faith, conflicts with the culture of civic religion, and then we must act accordingly. The second takeaway that I want to focus on, right, if we think that we have to be discerning, how do we respond when we recognize that there's a conflict? And I think that answer can be stated simply, boldly and with grace. If we return to Daniel 3, in verse 16 through 18, we see the response of these three men story that we're following. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are again standing in this room, king there saying, I'm ready to throw you in a furnace, guards surrounding them. Understandably, probably not how they planned their day. None of them probably woke up and said, huh, I feel like a furnace today. Right? This is not their intended goal, not where they're planning on going today, and they find themselves in this moment. And how do they respond? They say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. 
If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Now, there's a lot to learn in these few sentences right here. And the first is this, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were unequivocal about their position. They cannot worship other gods. They will not worship other gods. And they were bold in that. But second, in their answer, they demonstrated faith that their God was bigger. And they did that in two ways. The first is that they demonstrated faith that God can. Right? They said that the God we serve is able to deliver us. And I'm sure the people around them laughed at that. Right? The king's like, I've got the furnace, I've got the army, you three are chilling here in front of me. Where's your God? And so they said that God can deliver us. We're confident, 100% confident in that. And I think sometimes why we lean towards civic religion is that we're not 100% sure that God will or God can. The second part of this, the second piece of faith that I find fascinating, or probably my six favorite words in all of Daniel, is, but even if he does not, and I think this is important, they demonstrated commitment to their faith even if God did not do what they were hoping for that day. They were clearly rooting on the side of God delivering us from a furnace. That's their hope. That's their plan. But they said even if he does not, our faith is still there. We still know he's bigger. Now, if you continue through Daniel 3, you'll see that God does allow them to go into the furnace but protects them while they're in there. In fact, interestingly, they walk out of the furnace and end up with promotions. I think that's a really interesting example of how sometimes your worst days can turn into pretty wonderful things from God. Now, I want to say, sometimes the story doesn't get such a perfect bow. And in fact, I, I think it's intriguing that this whole furnace incident is likely a consequence of these individuals doing the right thing in Daniel chapter 2. For a quick summary of Daniel chapter 2, basically what happens is the king has these visions and he's looking for someone to interpret them. And none of the wise men or astrologers or people in Babylon can do it. But Daniel comes and interprets this vision and in fact basically tells the king to spare the wise men. The king was planning on killing all the wise men because he is unhappy with everyone. But he says, spare them. And what's interesting is this kindness that Daniel and his friends did is repaid with evil. Likely those are the same astrologers who went to the king and asked for them to be burned. And in fact, probably are the same people that proposed the law in the first place. I'm sure that each of you can think of a moment where you felt that you were acting in a way that is in line with God's calling and that that somehow turned out to be harmful to you in the end. Yet in this passage, we find a calling to a steadfast commitment, but even if he does not, we recognize that we are called to follow Jesus even in the midst of perceived harm, 
And this harm could be perceived harm to our future career, our expectations of what will happen at work. Our, it could be perceived harm to friendships. It could impact our finances, our romantic relationships, every aspect of our life. And we could sit there and say, this seems unfair. But the takeaway here is that we are called to live out God's vision for our lives regardless of the consequences and to do so boldly. Finally, I want to ensure that we do not take this as an opportunity to run away from society. In fact, what's intriguing is that these three men and Daniel all worked for the government. It's actually a fairly perfect DC story since about 70% of you are employed by the government at this point. <laughs> right? And so clearly these people weren't trying to hide. They were actively involved in the civics of Babylon. We're not called as Christians to seclude ourselves from the world. In fact, I'm pretty sure that's how cults start. But we are instead called to live in the world, but not be of the world. This means we must ask ourselves, when does our participation provide redemptive possibilities? And when are we called to non-participation as resistance? When values compete, we always go with God's values but we also don't abandon the world. So, as a recap of the three things I'm hoping you to take away from this story, in case you weren't listening, or Facebook was more interesting, or you got lost along the way. First, is that we as Christians are called to discern when our calling and our faith conflicts with the culture of civic religion. We have to be discerning. The second is that when we see a conflict, we must respond boldly and with grace. And the third is that we must continuously, actively decide when we are participating as a redemptive effort and when we are engaging in non-participation as resistance. To be a Christian takes a lot of thought. Right? It's not easy. And I think sometimes part of why we allow that acquiescence into civic religion is, frankly, it's just easier. It doesn't take so much thinking. It doesn't take so much discernment. It just feels like you're going with the flow. You don't want to rock the boat. But we can't do that. That's not where our faith calls us to be. I can't help but end with a, a quick caveat. We focused, as Daniel 3 lends itself to, on the idea of exile in one's own nation, a feeling of being pressured to fit in or assimilate with a culture. The feeling of exile, of course, also happens on many other levels. They can, you know, civic religion can be on a state level or a city level or be present in a social group or identity group or institution. But just like the three friends of Daniel, our faith compels us in community, together, to stand against those moments of oppression and to stand for justice. We are called to community, and as a church, we are called to push against the cultural norms and to focus on God's calling in our lives. When, this is actually why I love that we come to this table together every week. Because when we practice community or communion together, and community together, we'll go with both. Uh, but when we come around this table together, we're reminding ourselves that each and every person that comes to the table is part of the image of God. 
that to this table we bring our brokenness and we exchange it for grace. The communion table challenges the civic religion of elitism and privilege because all are welcome and all are equal. The communion table challenges the civic religion of individuality because when we are engaging in communion, we're doing it as a community to engage in its redemptive power. And this table, this communion process challenges the idea of civic religion because when we participate here, we're recognizing one king and one alone. One savior, one salvation, one truth. It is in community that we must be willing to have these conversations, that we must be willing to hold together and engage with the world but not be controlled by it. We want to be a community that works towards a space that mirrors the tables that Jesus, is sat, that Jesus sat at. And as a church community, we also have to set aside our own idols, our idols of individuality, of freedom, of pride, and hold together in our own differences. Followers of Jesus today are much like the Israelites in exile. We are in a nation, an empire, that sees itself often as infallible and is willing to go to great lengths to perpetuate that story. And yet we are called to be active participants and active resistors, to stand up to injustice, to fight for the vulnerable, to reject the idols of power, success, and fortune, and to put Christ above all else. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the king, that you have provided us a path to salvation. Lord, we pray that as we walk through this week, as we walk through our lives, Lord, that you remind us that we are not beholden to the civic religion that pervades around us, Lord, that we are called to a different living, a different environment, Lord. We pray that you challenge those moments when we just want to acquiesce, Lord, when we want it to be easier and remind us of the beautiful vision that your life gives us, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.